I V M. Hello and welcome to States of Anarchy. I'm your host Hamsini Hariharan, and every week I discuss global affairs and foreign policy with an expert. Today's episode is special, though. It's a roundup of all the major events that took place over the world in the month of August. It's part of a new series that I began last month. The basic idea is this: on the last Tuesday of every month, I round up all the international news so that you can be up to date on what happened and also have context for all these nuanced foreign policy conversations that I have on the podcast. So you must have heard about how bad hangovers are. In movies, people wake up with crumpled hair and makeup, and usually in someone else's house. The thing about hangovers is that you have to revisit much of what happened the night before. On some nights, particularly when you're young, the effects of the drunken night last far beyond nausea and self-mortification of the next day. No, I'm not hungover, folks. The month of August has seen a lot of events that have spilled over from July. Remember how we spoke about Donald Trump and how he wanted to withdraw from the INF treaty? No, it's fine. I'll be the good friend who held up your hair and told you how you danced on tables the night before. Before we get to that, however, let's focus on everything major that's taken place within India and its immediate neighborhood. Once upon a time, my Tinder bio once read, "Yes, I work in international relations. No, don't ask me about Kashmir." But when you live in India, this is an inescapable topic. And this month, even as we speak, there's a curfew in most parts of the now union territories. The Indian government removed the special status that was granted to the state of Jammu and Kashmir under Article 370. So the entire article hasn't been abrogated. It continues to exist in the statute book, but instead, it's been used to rid the state of its special powers. Article thirty-five, which also stems from Article three seventy, gives the state the power to define its permanent residence, has also been removed. Now, on the fifth of this month, the Rajya Sabha approved the Jammu and Kashmir Reorganisation Bill. As a result of this, what was originally the state of Jammu and Kashmir. has now been divided into two union territories ladakh and kashmir this is the first time that a state has been divided into union territories normally it's the other way around for example did you know that nagaland manipur tripura and even himachal pradesh were first union territories before they became states anyway kashmir will have a legislature ladakh won't aside from this change there have also been others that have come about as a result of the abrogation of article 35 Non-Kashmiris can now secure jobs in the newly formed territories. They can also buy land. This sounds rosy, and if you listen to channels like Republic TV, it is appealing. But what is troubling now is how this move has been taken. All of Jammu and Kashmir has been under lockdown in anticipation of mass protests. Schools and communication channels have been closed from almost a week before the changes were made. An increasing number of security personnel started making their way into the state. The Amarnath Yatra and other religious pilgrimages were cancelled. On August 18, the Agence France Presse or the AFP reported that approximately 4,000 people were arrested and kept in preventive detention. Of course, we don't have a final tally of all the people who've been detained or arrested. Why bother with the charade of democracy, right? Even after the abrogation, the state continues to be under lockdown. While internet and communication lines have only started being opened in phases almost ten days after the big move, a huge part of the state is still under a blanket. 
Family members have testified to being unable to contact their loved ones trapped due to the lockdown and reports of protests that slowly surfaced also spoke of the use of pellet guns by security forces consider all of this in the time of eid people unable to contact anyone outside the valley consider this when critical services like hospitals and airports are difficult to reach with military checkpoints regulating people's movements arbitrarily the manner in which jammu and kashmir have been forced to accept this change is autocratic But what's worse is that the government continues to stick to the line that the state is peaceful and that no protests ever took place. Speaking of protests, a report in the Hindu said that a magistrate who refused to reveal his identity alluded to the fact that almost 4000 people had been detained due to their open criticism of the move. In fact, even senior members of the PDP and former chief ministers Omar Abdullah, Farooq Abdullah and Mehbooba Mufti and others were put under house arrest and continue to remain so even as you're listening to this podcast clearly the government was not ready to deal with any criticism of the matter and potential threats were considered and taken care of beforehand if the 2000s were a period of comparative peace in kashmir when the indian government tried to win the hearts and minds of people let's just say that any gains it made it has already lost What this means for security in Kashmir is a grey area. When a terrorist or an insurgent movement has the support of the population, it is difficult to contain it, forget neutralize it. Now this has important repercussions for India in terms of the line of control or the LOC. By making Kashmir and Ladakh into union territories, India has de facto recognized the status quo of the LOC. This could mean that we're giving up the right to call for the reunification of the whole of Jammu and Kashmir and the parts that Pakistan is occupying. Presumably, the abrogation of Article 370 triggered a strong reaction in Pakistan. Two days after the special status was revoked, Pakistan decided to downgrade diplomatic relations. They suspended the Indian High Commissioner and also stopped bilateral trade with India. They suspended the services of the Samjhauta Express on their side of the border. following which india decided to do the same so i won't really count on taking a bus to lahore anytime soon pakistan with the help of china tried to take the issue to the united nations security council at an informal closed door meeting that kind of fell through when member after member refused to support their position countries like the united kingdom and the united states maintained that this was an internal matter of india Now if you're wondering why Kashmir hasn't gone to the UNSC more times than it already has you actually have to open your history textbooks a little turn to the year 1972 the war with Pakistan is over Bangladesh has been formed as a new state of its own India sort of flattened Pakistan on the western frontier at this point the leaders of both India and Pakistan met in Shimla and they signed an agreement which said that all issues regarding Kashmir would be resolved bilaterally So even if an other country wanted to mediate the matter the Shimla agreement meant that they couldn't and this has been India's line ever since the 1970s that hasn't really stopped Pakistan from taking the issue up constantly at the UNSC but that's just signaling all politicians do it now in other news our prime minister narendra modi traveled to bhutan on the 17th of august on a two day state visit This was his second trip to the state and the first since the start of his new term in office. Over these two days the two leaders signed 10 memorandums of understanding in the fields of space technology, IT, aviation, education and so on. 
You see, even though Bhutan has been firmly on India's side for the last how many ever years, it wants to diversify relations. And China has been sending tourists and offering scholarships to young people who are restless for more to happen in their country. It's natural, right? If you've been eating chocolate ice cream all your life, then once in a while, you should at least go to the nearest shop to see what other flavors exist. This will force the makers of chocolate ice cream to offer better versions. Bhutan hosted an other important dignitary. The US Deputy Secretary of State John Sullivan visited Bhutan, after which he visited India. He met India's Minister for External Affairs, S.J. Shankar, discussing issues to do with the Indo-Pacific, but more specifically how to counter China's increasing interference in Bhutan. Sullivan also reaffirmed that there was no change in the US's Kashmir policy. On the Bhutan front, he committed to improving people-to-people ties with the state and also in assistance in the educational sector. Now, there's been speculation about this visit being important for the US to gather a little more intelligence from the border between Bhutan and China. But those conversations are not public until 50 years later, so all we have is speculation. If you thought that Modiji had enough on his hands with Bhutan and Kashmir, you're wrong. Our Prime Minister also visited France, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain last week. On the 22nd of August, he spoke with French President Emmanuel Macron on several issues, including Kashmir. He also addressed the Indian community in France, speaking of all the major changes he's made after the beginning of his second term. He then flew to the United Arab Emirates, his next stop, before heading to Bahrain, and then back to France for the G7 summit. At the UAE, Prime Minister Modi met the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, stating that the UAE was a valuable partner in helping reach its goal of a $5 billion economy by 2024. The UAE, meanwhile, awarded Modiji with its highest civilian award for improving bilateral relations. You might ask at this point why Modiji is making trips to two declared Islamic nations. My guess is that he's using this as a means to reassure them that the changes in Kashmir are not anti-Islamic and that they're driven by purely administrative and security-based agendas. You see, Pakistan has not only appealed to the UNSC, but a bunch of other organizations, including the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, or the OIC. The OIC is a grouping of 57 countries, majority of which are Muslim-dominated. It's usually been supportive of Pakistan on the Kashmir issue. Prime Minister Modi was not the only one racking up Air India mileage points this month. Our external affairs minister, S.J. Shankar, travelled to China. Now, all roads in Indian foreign policy crisscross at Kashmir. I need you to remember that China has a stake in Kashmir. Long story short, Pakistan sold a piece of POK to China. And don't forget, the disputed area of Aksai Chin falls under the new union territory of Ladakh. So, Jaishankar's trip took place in the middle of China's outspoken criticism of the abrogation of Kashmir's special status. But Jaishankar's got this, though. He served as the Indian envoy to China between 2009 and 2013, the longest term served by an Indian diplomat in Beijing. Over the three-day visit, he met with his Chinese counterpart and spoke about everything on India-China ties. But if you read the statements from both foreign ministries, you can see that the two leaders got different things out of the meeting. A discussion on the Chinese concern about the state of the line of control after changes in Kashmir also took place. Jaishankar reiterated that all the changes were internal matters of India and have no international implications. Now for some good news. One of our major achievements from the last month was the launch of Chandrayaan-2 on a mission to the south of the moon. 
The satellite was launched on the 22nd of July. Almost a month after its launch, the satellite entered the moon's orbit and also successfully completed its second lunar orbit maneuver on the 21st of August. The satellite is scheduled to land on the surface of the moon on 7th September. Remember, if this mission is successful, India will be the first country to make it to the south of the moon, a feat that will be a major feather in our cap in terms of space exploration. India also celebrated the 20th anniversary of its nuclear doctrine on the 17th of August. The doctrine was drafted a year after India conducted the Pokhran II nuclear tests in 1998. Now, the point of the nuclear doctrine was to tell the world what India's strategy was with nuclear weapons. When would we consider using them, essentially? And one of the most significant attributes of India's nuclear policy is that of no first use. The NFU basically means that India pledges never to be the first to use nuclear weapons in a conflict and that their only role was retaliatory. This ties in with our whole idea that nuclear weapons are weapons of peace and not weapons of war. But recently, that came into the news when Defence Minister Rajnath Singh visited Pokhran to pay his respects to former Prime Minister Atal Bihari Vajpayee. He is reported to have said that while India is committed to the no first use, the same might not necessarily be our position in the future. If this is further backed by the government in an official capacity, this could create waves in the world's nuclear order. I'm not sure that this means anything. Often politicians say stuff just to signal that they have iron wills. But if you do want to hear more about why the no first use won't be dissolved or learn about the nuclear doctrine, then I highly suggest that you tune into my previous episode. So in episode 24 of States of Anarchy, I talked to Dr. Manpreet Sethi about the nuclear doctrine, and it was possibly one of my personal favorite podcast episodes ever. So go back and listen to it and tell me if I'm right. The thing about Pakistan and China and the US is that the news gets very monotonous for me at least. Let's talk about an other country where August has been a full month, Russia. On 5th of August, a massive explosion took place at a Russian military ammunition depot in Siberia. Over 9,500 people were evacuated from a radius of around 20 kilometers. Air traffic was also suspended over a radius of 30 kilometers from the munitions depot. The official line is that an old shell blew up an army truck, but it just seems a little weird, I guess. to evacuate 10,000 people for a small explosion but i guess we'll never know explosions in munition depots are not new to russia the previous major explosion took place in may 2018 you know the famous line right bade bade desho mein aisi choti choti baatein hoti rehti hai more pressing in the case of russia however are protests that have been taking place in moscow and st petersburg for the last 6 weeks these have been triggered by election officials preventing independent candidates from contesting for moscow's city council disqualifying their ballots on the grounds that there were huge irregularities in the 5000 signatures collected by them this has been happening in the backdrop of declining popularity of the united russia party over various unpopular decisions made by them in recent times These protests are among the biggest political protests that have taken place in Russia in recent years and it spread to other cities as well. It's turned a sleepy council election into a major political controversy. Now, a large number of these candidates whose ballots were disqualified were members of the Moscow United Party, while others are known critics of the Kremlin. They came up with the ingenious idea of running as independents so as to be able to have their ballots approved. However, the administration's tight watch on its adversaries ensured that that didn't happen. On the fifth weekend of the protests, approximately the 10th of August, almost 50,000 people turned up to protest, while official figures put 
the number at 20,000. The Russian government, though, has taken it upon itself to show just how far it's willing to go to quell the protests. Listen to this story. A couple who was out with their one-year-old son happened to find themselves in the middle of an unsanctioned protest and they almost had their parental rights stripped away by prosecutors. A district court pressed for the child to be taken into care on the grounds that it was handed to a third person, essentially putting its life in danger. The message is clear. The government will go as far as they need to to induce fear in the minds of people and to get them to stop protesting. It's unlikely that it will heed to the demands of the protesters. But with the Moscow City Council elections scheduled for September 8th, the government has to tread carefully. At this point, let's take a break. Welcome back after the break. You're listening to States of Anarchy and I'm Hamsani Hariharan. You see, protests are the safety valves of democracy. But how would you classify three months of protests that threaten to turn violent? Yep, I'm talking about Hong Kong. The protests over the controversial extradition bill are still on, with thousands coming out on the streets every single day and twice as many over the weekends. The nature of these protests have turned violent in recent days, with increasing use of tear gas on part of the security personnel and bricks and possibly Molotov cocktails by several protesters and activists. The government is yet to completely withdraw the bill and media reports and analysis claim that Beijing would be more than okay with letting these protests draw out for as long as they happen. You see, it's determined to keep its eye on the ball, that is, the incorporation of Hong Kong into China. Going back to another story that we spoke about in the last week of July, the Iranian vessel which had been detained at Gibraltar. All the 24 crew members on board the Iranian vessel Grace 1 were released on 15th of August. The vessel had been seized by the Royal Navy on grounds that it was carrying oil to Syria in violation of EU sanctions. Now, Iran never admitted to this, but it seized a British flag tanker named Stena Impero in retaliation last month. The Stena, though, is still under Iranian detention. What's interesting to note is that the Indian crew aboard the Stena Impero were released by the Iranians the last month. This only goes to show the extent to which Iran looks to India as an ally. Things with Britain, however, may not seem the same, given that it was only till recently that the crew were released. Further, on a more recent and a major development, is that the fact that Gibraltar finally released Grace One on the basis of Iran's promise that it won't sail towards Syria. This happened despite a U.S. federal court issuing a warrant for the seizure of the vessel, the oil on board it, alongside one million dollars, saying that they are in breach of U.S. sanctions against Iran. Gibraltar, however, maintained that it could not comply with this request as it was bound by the EU law. With Grace One setting sail towards Kalamata in Greece, Iran also reportedly issued a warning to the US against seizing any more vessels through renewed warrants. The Iranian Foreign Ministry maintained that such an action would endanger shipping safety in open seas. It also stated that it had warned the US through official channels, especially the Swiss embassy. as Switzerland represents US interests in Iran given that Tehran and Washington have no diplomatic relations what's in store for the stena however is yet to be seen as Iran still maintains the policy of using the states of the EU to pressure the US into withdrawing sanctions it's imposed on Iran now on to possibly the most interesting news of the month the president of the United States Donald Trump said he wanted to buy the island of Greenland yes you heard me right he wants to buy it 
But this isn't actually all that surprising, as the United States has had a history of buying territory it's deemed valuable to its interests. In 1869, the US bought Alaska from Russia, and before that, in 1803, it purchased Louisiana from the French. However, the one thing you'll notice is that all of these have taken place in the 19th century. So here's a small politics 101 lesson about Greenland. It's a country, but it's under the state of Denmark. So that means that the Danes take care of its defense and foreign relations, making the island semi-autonomous. The Danish Prime Minister, Met Friedrichsen, refused to entertain the idea, even as she went to meet the Premier of Greenland, Kim Kielsen. She said, and I quote, Greenland is not for sale. Greenland is not Danish. Greenland belongs to Greenland. Kim Kielsen has, of course, made it clear that Greenland is not for sale. That's where the conversation ends. End quote. Trust Donald Trump to throw a hissy fit. He was so miffed that he cancelled his visit to Denmark. There's nothing like being able to coerce someone into compliance in person, right? But the bigger question is this. Why does the US want to buy Greenland? And how likely is it that this purchase will follow through? The answer is simple. Greenland is rich in rare earth minerals and possibly oil. Though we'll only know once global warming has melted a lot more ice. So it's a strategic move, considering that China currently dominates the market for rare earth minerals. Another reason is that Greenland is a barrier between Russia and the US, enabling the US to increase the area under its control. So the US definitely has a lot to gain from this move. But how likely is it to succeed? Well, purchases of territory today do not happen the way they did in earlier times of conflict. While the Danes are an important factor in influencing whether or not the purchase goes through, the people of Greenland are equal stakeholders because it's up to them to decide whether or not they want to continue to be a part of Denmark or shift to America. Speaking of the US takes me back to my introduction where I speak about bad hangovers. You remember the Intermediate Nuclear Range Forces Treaty? Well, the US finally withdrew from it on 2nd of August, followed by Russia the very next day. Both sides have continued to blame each other for abandoning the INF Treaty, with US stating that Russia has been violating it for quite some time and Russia saying the exact same thing. The treaty was signed by Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev in 1987, and it basically banned testing of medium-range land-based missiles between the range of 500 and 5,000 kilometers. With this treaty suspended, the new start is the only remaining agreement that's preventing a nuclear arms race. So what happened was that Russia called for a meeting of the UNSC following the US test of a missile that was banned under the treaty. The test, which was conducted on the 18th, according to Russia, pointed to the fact that the US had consistently violated the terms of the treaty for quite some time. Now, the US maintained the position that Russia has been doing so for much longer. The United States' NATO allies have also blamed Russia for the death of the treaty. Russia has now maintained that if US continues to flex its muscles, it would only result in an arms race that won't have any controls or regulations over it. How this will turn out is yet to be seen. And a lot will determine on Trump's willingness to renew the new start, which is going to expire in 2021. On the subject of nuclear weapons, North Korea fired what appeared to be two short-range ballistic missiles, as confirmed by the South Korean military. This is the seventh test, ever since the leaders of the two states met in June. So at that point, they'd agreed to start working-level negotiations, but things have only been going south since then. North Korea's consistent testing has led the US to maintain that any dialogue on non-proliferation can only take place if the other side puts a stop to this testing. Afghanistan has also been in the news in the month of August. Now, talks are going on between America and the Taliban about a withdrawal of American troops from the state. 
Now, on the 21st, Donald Trump indicated that there will not be a complete withdrawal, but only a partial one. He said that because of reasons of intelligence, someone must always be present in the war-torn state. Afghanistan was also shook by a bombing at a wedding that took place on 17th August. The Islamic State declared that it was behind the attack. Over the days, the death toll has risen to 80. While the initial toll on the day of the blast itself was 63, 17 later succumbed to their wounds. This raises serious questions about whether or not Afghanistan will witness peace, despite the US-Taliban talks. As I mentioned, Trump did declare that he would partially withdraw, saying that he found it ridiculous that this war had dragged on for 18 years, with the US forces being seen as more of a police force. At the same time, instances like this, Trump said, are exactly what are preventing him from executing a complete withdrawal. Violence wasn't restricted to Afghanistan alone. The US really shouldn't throw stones at other glass houses. El Paso, in the United States, witnessed a mass shooting at a Walmart outlet. The shooter was reportedly anti-immigrant and targeted shoppers who looked Hispanic, while allowing African-American and white shoppers to leave. 22 people died, while another 24 were injured. The United States of late has been a hotbed for an increasing anti-immigrant rhetoric. This has only been emboldened by the harsh anti-immigrant laws that have come into place under the Trump administration. While gun laws in the US vary from state to state, there seems to be hope that things are moving towards the better, while some inducing background checks as being essential for the purchase of a weapon. However, these all have their limitation. Background checks only apply when someone goes to a federally licensed dealer to purchase a weapon. So in all other cases, you and I can merrily walk into the store and buy a weapon of their choice. I'm going to end this wrap-up on a further note of despair. The Amazon forest is experiencing wildfires in eight different countries. There's a lot that's being said about who is to blame. The NGOs, the indigenous people, the Brazilian president Bolsonaro, the rest of the world's demands for products from the Amazon. Everyone, possibly. The wildfires are not new, but the Amazon is home to 20% of the world's oxygen. I know, Hamsini, stop lecturing me. I can already hear you think. But the world in which you grew up in no longer exists. This new world in which we live now is going to be different. You're going to rethink where to live or invest or send your kids to school or settle down to retire. I know because I'm thinking about these questions every day. Well, not every day, considering that I'm making a career out of podcasting, I should be worrying about penury, not profit. But jokes apart, look around the world in which you live and do better for the environment every day. You already know what you can do, and that goes beyond just sharing a photo of the Amazon forest burning on Instagram and WhatsApp. With that, we come to the end of this episode of States of Anarchy. I hope you found it useful. Huge shout out to Vikram Varma for helping me script this episode. Vikram is a student of journalism with a keen interest in foreign policy and international relations. If you have any questions or comments, do reach out to me at the rate States of Anarchy on Instagram or at the rate Hamsni H on Twitter. You can listen to States of Anarchy on the IBM podcast website, app, or wherever you get your podcast from. We'll be back next Tuesday. <laughs>